Good morning, Austin Oaks. How are we doing today? Good. Uh, my family and I, we just got back from a week-long vacation, which was awesome, very much needed. Um, name is Brandon Ziske, the lead pastor here. We want to let you know, if you're a guest with us, we are thrilled and honored that you would choose to worship with us this morning. We want to let you know who we are as a church. We are a church that's simply about Jesus, because we want to be every generation made alive. We believe that when you encounter him, it literally, it, it changes everything. And so we're not ashamed of him as our Lord and Savior. We're not ashamed to stand on the truth of scriptures, and we just love to come together and to worship him. And so um, that's a little bit about who we are. I love the fall season for many, many reasons, but one new reason that's starting to discover as a parent, and it's kind of selfish, but it's okay, is school starts again. Like when I was a student, I hated the fact that school would start, but now as a parent, I count down the days for the school to start. But not only that, it's also like football season. Like, you know, like, come on, who's excited for college football season? Come on, let's just be honest, right? And like, you know, being a UT fan or an A&M fan, it's like, boy, the, the early slate is pretty rough going. And so I'm going to be gentle and nice to all of y'all this, this week. I don't want to get hissed. I don't want to get booed. I don't want to get emails about how UT is God's team and all that kind of stuff. I just don't, I just, we're not going to go there, okay? Um, but also, you know, I'm a more of an NFL fan, so I like the Bears. But not only that, this is an opportunity, too, for us as a church to rally together, to realign our hearts and our folks again for the fall. Because a lot of times in church world, we kind of structure our year around the academic year. And so we start to look at September as kind of our launch, you know, for it. And so that's why we like to use August as a month of prayer. And so Last week, we launched a 21 days of prayer, and on your card again is a simple card, invite your one. Normally, when we do these prayer series, we like to do special times of corporate prayer as a church. We decided to not do that this, this month because we know that people are busy. They're trying to get their last round of vacations in or all the other events and plannings that they have. And so what we wanted to do was to seriously ask the Lord, who is the one? Lord, who is it that you're wanting me to share my life with, but also to share the gospel with? Who is the one, Lord, that you want me to move closer to in a relationship? Who is the one that you want me to invite to church? And as you, if you were here with us last week, we were talking about how this is not simply like just to get people in the seats, right? Like it's not just about numbers, even though numbers matter because numbers represent people. This is an opportunity for us as a church to understand clearly and without a shadow of doubt that prayer is the most important weapon that we have to fight against the enemy. And so we want to be praying for these people as we know, as scripture tells us, that the enemy has them in captivity. And so we want to be moving and fighting for them spiritually through prayer. And so I want to encourage you, every single one of you, grab this and just ask the Lord, who is the one? Okay, and pray for that and pray for each other. And on the back, there are just simple four requests that we want you to pray for every single day. And you can keep this in your car, in a mirror, anywhere. You can slip it in a bookmark, what, whatever, if you even know what a book is anymore because of all the digital stuff. Like just, it's, it's there for you. And we have designed a series in September that is really designed around asking questions about religion and understanding that religion doesn't work the way we think it works. It's only the gospel. And so it's a great series to be inviting your friends and your guests, your neighbors and your families to, okay? So this morning, we're going to be jumping back into the series, Prayers on the Front Line. And I, and I always like to sort of embarrass myself because, I don't know, that's just kind of the way I'm wired and maybe that's why God gave me so many goofy stories as a kid. 
I grew up playing Nintendo, like the old school Nintendo, not Nintendo 64, like the old school Nintendo. And one of the games that we loved as kids was Mike Tyson Punch-Out. Anybody know that game? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, all right. You know, and so it's like, as a bunch of us, we just thought, hey, we, we know how to box because we know the boxing strategy because of the video game. And so a bunch of us, we just bought some boxing gloves and we went into our garages and we created rings and we thought, hey, let, let's start boxing. And I remember my first fight, it, it was so ridiculous. I remember we're talking like 14, 15 years old. Like we had no clue what we were doing. And I'm like trying to like talk myself up, get ready for it. And I'm like, you know, trying to like, in all honesty, I was scared. I, like, I was terrified. I've never gotten a fight as a kid. And so I get in there, and I'm talking a big game. You know, they hit the, the fake bell, and I just, like, run in the corner, and I just cower. And this guy is just pummeling me. You know, and I was just thinking to myself, it's like I was pretending, I was deceiving myself, thinking that I had everything that I needed to stand toe-to-toe. But the reality was I was full of myself, and I didn't realize that I was actually quite weak and quite scared. Now, on the flip side, Muhammad Ali was not. Muhammad Ali was the greatest fighter of all time. And we're not doing a comparison and contrast, right? Because that would just be completely ridiculous. Muhammad Ali floats like a butterfly, stings like a bee. One of the tremendous fighters. In 1974, if you're a sports fan, you know what fight happened in 1974. It was the rumble in the jungle, right? And he fought Mr. George Foreman, you know, the, the, the larger guy who makes grills, right? You know what I'm talking about? And like George Foreman, at that time of his life, when he was fighting Muhammad Ali, he was at his peak, right? And like even commentators and historians would say that he had the most devastating right hook. It were like, he, he, he was known for knocking people out, like instantly. And during this fight, Muhammad Ali was a former shell of himself. Like he just didn't have what it would take to go toe-to-toe with George Foreman. And he knew that. And even his trainers and his coaches, those in his corner, they knew that. And so they had to think through a certain strategy in order to fight him. Because the reality was he couldn't go toe-to-toe with George Foreman. Because if he did, he would get completely devastated. I mean, if you were to even look up right now, like, just like, actually, don't do that right now. I want you to listen. Do it later. Like, commentators were terrified that Muhammad Ali would be permanently injured from this fight. Because that's how dominating George Foreman was. So round one begins, and Ali's doing his thing. He's floating like a butterfly, singing like a bee. But then it like, got into round two. His strategy completely changed. And for the next six, seven rounds, he was, doing, he was just leaning on the ropes, guarding his head, but leaving his midsection open. And it was, it was a beautiful strategy, but nobody knew what was happening. As he was leaning on the ropes, he could easily absorb the punches to his body, which was actually his strength as well, was his core. And rounds two, four, five, six, and seven, I mean, George Foreman, he just gave it to him, like everything he had, and just pummeling him left and right. And the commentators were completely worried. They had no idea what was going on. And all the time, the coaches and trainers in the corner were saying, keep going, keep going, I'll let you know. We'll let you know when it's ready to go. And all of a sudden, at the end of round seven, Muhammad Ali, he clinches George Foreman, and he whispers in his ear, is that all you got, George? And then later on in the interview, George would say, reflecting on that, he goes, I knew I was in trouble at that moment. Because what ended up happening was, all of that time as George was just leaning on the ropes, taking the punches, 
George Foreman was exhausting himself. He was so tired that by round eight, Muhammad Ali, he just lit him up, took him out, and won. After the fight, people were asking him, Muhammad Ali, what were you doing? Like, what were you thinking? And he started explaining. He's like, listen, I knew I couldn't fight him toe-to-toe, so I had to employ an unconventional, unconventional strategy, so I had to rope-a-dope. And he started to explain it. He's like, I just leaned on the rope and I brought the dope in, right? And like, it was just a brilliant strategy. He's like, when the time was right, I knew when to strike. This strategy wasn't wise. Like from the outside looking in, everybody was like, what's going on? What's wrong with Ali? Is he hurt? Is he injured? Is he afraid? They had no idea. It looked like he was losing. It looked like he was being defeated. It looked like the end was near. But he knew. Ali knew that he had to do something different in order to win. Ali knew where he was weak. He knew where he was vulnerable. He knew that going toe-to-toe was not right. He knew he had to lean on the ropes. He knew that his core was his strength. He knew that George Foreman has never gone eight rounds. He knew exactly what he had to do. And so he roped a dope. Now listen, the reason why I share that is because when we pray, hear me. When we pray, it's the same strategy. We're roping a dope. Because it doesn't look like conventional wisdom. When we go, when all hell is breaking loose in our lives, when things are hurting, when things are a struggle, when you feel like you're in a battle and it feels like you're losing, Scripture tells us that your greatest weapon and your only weapon really should be prayer. We look at it and we go, how is that an effective weapon? On the outside looking in, it looks like prayer is losing. Like when we think about wartime and battle, we're like, no, no, I would rather have a sword. I'd rather have a shield. I'd rather get in that ring and show that I can go toe-to-toe and fight that enemy. But the reality is you can't. You can't do it. As we said last week, you're in a battle, and it's inevitable. You cannot get away from that battle. But the reality is you cannot stand in your own strength in that battle. If you try to do things in your own strength and your own might, you're already lost. And prayer is dependence on God to its fullest. We need to realize, we need to realize that we are in a ring facing an opponent. I said it differently last week. You got to understand that we are on the front lines. It doesn't matter if you think you are or you're not. You are, because you have an enemy, right? And we even said last week that that enemy has a plan for your life, and that plan is ultimately to destroy you. And he could give, let me rephrase that, he could, he could care less if you recognized him or not. He could care less if you think he exists or doesn't exist. It doesn't matter to him. In fact, one of his best strategies is to make you think that he doesn't exist. He masquerades as an angel of light. He wants to take you out. You are in a ring. You are in a battle. Period. And you got to understand that. This fight is as real as it gets. And here's the deal. I'm going to be repeating some things from last week in order to make a point. If I don't realize that I'm in a battle, I've already lost. I think... In a lot of ways, the church has 
done a disservice because like we we tell one part of the gospel right we we tell people that you know we're dead in our sins god loves us he sent his son to love us he died on the cross his blood was shed for our sins and he conquered death in the grave so that we could have new life and a lot of times we leave it there we say okay who's ready to pray and receive jesus as lord and savior and have new life we're like awesome and also next you know as you're trying to walk out your life so you feel like you're just hitting these oppositions. And a lot of things we don't say when we talk about the gospel is we fail to say, oh, and by the way, all hell's going to break loose on you. Oh, by the way, there's an enemy who's out there to completely destroy you. Are you still in? And so when we, talk, when we start to fuel these battles, we immediately start wondering, God, what's wrong with you? Where are you? I thought you were good. I thought you were great. I thought you were strong and all this is happening. Or you start to go, what's wrong with me? Why don't I get it? Maybe I'm not a good Christian. Maybe I'm not even saved. Maybe I'm not this or maybe I'm not that. The reality is you are in the ring fighting a battle. And there's really only one tactic in order to fight that battle well. You are in a ring. And here's the deal. You are not in the ring because of who you are. You are not in the ring because, like, you're awesome. You are in the ring because of whose you are. You are a child of God. Humanity was God's greatest creation. And Satan, Lucifer, who also was created good, fell and became bad and now is jealous and hates the fact that God has set his heart on having a relationship with us. And he knows, Satan knows that he can't touch God. He can't damage God. He can't go after him and ruin him. So what does he do? He goes after what would be closest to his heart, which is his children. So you're in a ring, not because of you, but because of whose you are. And Satan wants to take you out. You have to understand this. There's a battle for your marriage right now. If you're married, there is a war being raged on your marriage. If you have kids, folks, there is a war going after your kids' hearts right now. If you don't believe me, pop up social media. Pick an app. There's a battle for the workplace, for honesty, integrity good quality character. There's a battle going on for finances and greed and all that stuff and generosity. It's real. This battle is real and it's subtle. As a Christian, you are one of God's children and he's going to come after you. And like we said last week, the battle isn't against flesh and blood. The real battle isn't against your ex, isn't against your spouse. It's not against your business partner who stabbed you in the back. It's not against your coworker who can't stand you or your supervisor who overlooks you. It's not against the professor that's going to come after you for saying you're a believer. It's not against your siblings. No, no, no. The battle is against the powers and principalities that are here, the demonic force, the flesh, the world, and Satan. And everybody else who comes against us who aren't made alive in Jesus, they are held captives to this enemy. That's what Scripture says. That's the reality. So, if you don't know your enemy, you're also defeated. It's the same thing. Like, if you don't realize that you're already in a battle, if you don't realize that you're already in a war, you're already lost. But if you don't know your opponent... 
you're also defeated. How does he work? What does he look like? How does he come after me? Absolutely important, right? Because a lot of times, a lot of times, like people in the church, we, we would rather be like Christian bodybuilders, Okay, like we would rather do the training and the study and get really big and strong and all this kind of stuff. But you're not using all that training for like naturally like an athletic sport besides standing in front of a bunch of people and flexing so you look good. Think about that for a moment. Right? Like we train, we get in the Word, we try to follow Jesus, not just so we can flex in front of our people and go, look at me. I know stuff. Like, well, like, like, you know, being fed. Like, what's the point of being fed if it's not to move forward and build the kingdom of God? Oh, I haven't been fed. That's not deep. What are you talking about? Like, just so you can get bigger and flex your muscles in front of other people? Or is it to use that training to advance the kingdom of God forward? When you think of, like, military, people, when they get in the army, they try to know as much as they possibly can about their opponent. They want to know where they're hiding, what weapons they're using, their tactics. They try to know. They're not going to know everything, but they try to know as much as they can. We need to do the same thing. John 10.10, praise the Lord, Jesus made it very clear what our, our tact, his tactic is. It's to steal, steal belief, steal faith, slowly erode your confidence in God's goodness, slowly make you start compromising your identity in Jesus. And then from there, he's going to start to kill that. To harden your heart, to make you begin to neglect God and his word and prayer. To slowly move you away from community. To slowly move you away from even thinking about it besides Sunday morning. And his ultimate design is to destroy you. That's his plan. That's his purpose for you. Peter, as we're going to discover, he writes in 1 Peter 5, he gives a very clear picture of the enemy. And he gives us a very clear image. He doesn't say that the enemy is like a snake or a hawk or a coyote. He says he's like a prowling lion looking to devour someone. Like, just think about this. This is the image the Bible gives of our enemy. Sneaking around. Waiting. For that moment, and that lion attacks those who are vulnerable, who aren't watching, as you're going to hear me say later, who aren't watching and praying. And that lion's going to come, and he's going to take you. And it wants to devour you, not just nip you in the rear. It wants to take you out. The good news is, church, we are more than conquerors through Jesus. 1 John 4, 4 says that, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And the scriptures even tell us how to stand. And how we stand is not going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the enemy in our own might, thinking that, hey, just because I know Mike Tyson punch-out video game, I know how to fight. No. You've got to employ a different tactic. A tactic that looks foolish to the world, that looks foolish even to yourself. It's prayer. It's prayer. That's the tactic. And last week we saw this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul tells them over and over and over. He says, listen, you stand in the strength 
of the Lord and in his might, so that you may stand, that you may stand, that you may stand. And he says, here's some of the gear that you put on. You put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the gospel of peace on your shoes, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith. And we oftentimes leave it there. But in verse 18, it starts to tell us like, oh, and praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer, supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. The Greek grammar in this verse is actually pointing to prayer being the very thing of how we stand. Prayer is how we put on the armor of God. And we talked about this last week. The armor of God is technically Jesus. And when we pray, we're putting ourselves in a position of dependence. And when we do that, we're putting on the belt of truth. We're putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Prayer is how you stand. I don't know about you, but I don't like that. I'm just going to be honest. Like, for some reason, maybe it's just my pride. Like, I feel better. Like, I don't know, like, maybe I feel more successful if I can win on my own. I don't want to appear weak. I want to stand in my own might and my own strength and say, God, look, I done good. And God's like, listen, I, I know, like, A for effort, buddy. But listen, you can't. I love you so much. You've got to know you can't. You will be defeated. You stand by praying. And prayer is mysterious. I absolutely get it. How do we fight by prayer? You pray in the Spirit, right? We start to align ourselves with God's will. You pray with all things, all supplication. You make every request, everything known, and you're just constantly praying. You don't, you don't quit. You keep persevering. And we're going to talk about that next Sunday. Prayer. Folks, listen. Prayer is the means by which believers depend on the Lord, and therefore that's how we put on the armor of God. You've you got to understand this. You don't put on the armor of God by just trying to learn more, even though that's important. Prayer is vital. And here's what we know to be true. Let's just be honest. We all know this. Prayer is not the path of the least resistance, but it's the path of the greatest resistance. You know why I say that? Because when you're in a battle, let's just be honest, what do you give up first? I'm willing to bet, more often than not, it's praying. We might pray immediately like, Lord, help me. Lord, deliver me. And then just kind of stop and we don't persevere. We pray, and then we start to try things in our own effort and our own strength and all this kind of stuff. And maybe if the results don't come quick enough, they don't come the way we want, prayer becomes even more calloused. Prayer is the hardest thing. Prayer is the hardest thing. So, what I wanted to get into this morning, and I, I scratched at this a little bit last week, is. Jesus' prayer in the garden before he went to the cross. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. When we were in Israel um, a few weeks back, this was probably for me one of the most powerful moments 
that I had on the trip because we got to do something that I didn't get to do the first time around. We, we, we tried to follow the, the, Lord's, the last week of the Lord Jesus before he went to the cross in, in order of the spots we went to. And we first started out by going up to the upper room. And as we were in the upper room, this is like Jesus' last moments with his disciples. He's trying to let them know what's coming. He wanted to spend an intimate moment with them. He institutes the Lord's Supper with them as a sacrament to help them remember the gospel. Like, listen, my body's being broken for you. My blood's going to be shed for you. This is the new covenant. This is why I came. And they're doing it during the symbolic Passover feast, which everybody knew the sacrificial lamb is a picture to the coming Messiah. And Jesus is saying, it's me. And he's real somber. And the, the disciples are very hopeful and expecting that maybe today, maybe this week, Jesus is going to come and kick Rome out and restore the temple. And Israel's going to be back in its glorious heyday. Like, they're a little bit hopeful. And so they leave the upper room, and we walk this. We walk from the upper room down to the Kidron Valley, right outside the temple and the walls, all the way to the garden on Mount of Olives. And on that path, on that journey from the upper room all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus starts talking to them, and he tells them this in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out. And so they began to take this walk from the upper room all the way down to the garden, which the Bible tells us was a Sabbath day walk. It took us about 30 minutes, give or take. We had to stop for photos because we're tourists, right? So maybe it was probably like 40, you know, 20 minutes for them. They sent a hymn, they went, and Jesus, as he's walking, Look at this. He says, you're all going to fall away because of me this night. I mean, just imagine that, right? As you just had this powerful dinner with, the, with your Lord and Savior there, and, and you're hopeful, and all of a sudden as you're walking, Jesus just out of nowhere says, you're all going to fall away. Every single one of you. Every single one of you. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Listen, that's God's grace right there. Like, that, that's beautiful. God's like, you're going to run away. You're going to give up on me in that moment. But listen, I am my grace. I'm going to come back. And I'm going to show myself to you. I will restore you. I love that. little side note. Peter. Peter answered him. <laughs> this, is, this, this, is, this is comedy. Okay? Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, if we were to jump to Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 22, after Peter says this, it's like, hey, I'm not going to fall away. Jesus says to him, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He desires to have you. And after you fall, after you return, come strengthen your brothers. How would you feel if Jesus said that to you? Peter, li listen, Satan has asked for you. And I'm going to let him. And after you fall, you know, strengthen your brothers. I mean, like, like they, they just don't get it. They're trying to think like, hey, we're good. We can have this. Like Peter's like very self-sufficient. I can stand. Lord, I'm, I'm not weak. I'm not like them. I'm different. Like I'm, I'm, I'm your boy. Right, you even told me that my name is The Rock. I am moving. Like, he has no idea. And Jesus says to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. 
Man, Peter said to him, he doesn't relent. Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples, of course, they said the same, on the walk. And then in verse 36, they went to a place called Gethsemane, which basically means in the Hebrew olive press. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Jesus knows that the hour is near. He knows that the greatest battle of all time is about to be waged. And what does he do? He goes and prays. He brings his closest companions, as we're going to see, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John. He's like, come with me. I, I, I can't just do this by myself. Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with them Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is our example. Right? He, he's on the verge of the greatest human battle ever known. He's going to be facing the worst injustice ever. He's about to carry, go to the cross and carry the weight of the humanity's sin to take on himself the full wrath of God. He, has to, he knows he's going to experience such torture, isolation, abandonment, and he's realizing in his own humanity that he himself, by himself, in his flesh, he cannot stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the enemy. So he does what we all need to do in the garden when we're in the battle is pray. He prays. In other words, folks, hang with me here. It's a spiritual rope-a-dope. Because this does not look like wisdom. Run away, fight, get back, get your crowd, send angels down, do anything. And Jesus is here in a posture of weakness, praying, even letting his closest boys know it. My heart is troubled to the point of death. And he's praying. And he's just asking his friends, watch with me. Pray with me. This is a real fight for Jesus. But listen, folks, listen. This is where the battle is won. Here. Not later. The battle is won in the garden of prayer. That's where the battle is won. Gethsemane is a powerful name as Olive Press. Like Jesus was literally being pressed here. Have you ever felt that in your life? Like you just feel like everything's coming and it's just, it's just pressing you and you don't know what else to do. Finances are looking bleak. Your spouse just said, I'm leaving unless you change. Your kids just got arrested. I don't know. And you're just like, you feel like nothing can, it's just, you're just being pressed. It's here in this garden where the battle is won. When you're being pressed in life, prayer is what you need to do. And here's why I love what Jesus did. He prayed for deliverance. Let that be a grace for us. Because Jesus in his humanity didn't just go, oh God, I know I'm going to die. and This is going to be real easy. The joy is set before me. Let's do it. He's feeling it. And he even asked, Lord, Father, if there's a way, if there's another way, get me out. 
Uh, that's just not there for good reverence. Like, like, this is a heartfelt prayer. Father, please deliver me. Folks, it's okay to pray for deliverance in whatever situation you are in. However, the problem is we get frustrated with God if he doesn't deliver us the way we want. And Jesus, again, shows us the example because sometimes, folks, sometimes God wants you to be pressed. Sometimes God wants you to be in that garden of struggle. He knows what's best for his children, and his ways are above our ways. We need to understand that, hey, sometimes God's will for you is to go a few rounds in the ring. God will get glory from it. I can't explain to you the reason or strategy behind it all the time. Prayer is a mystery. God's ways are a mystery. But listen, it doesn't change his goodness. It doesn't change his faithfulness to you. He is going to be faithful. He's always going to be good. We pray for his kingdom to come, always. And that's why we're told to stand our ground, to put on the armor, so that we can withstand doing all that we can. Which means we're going to fight sometimes. I know many of us in the church, we, when struggle comes, we immediately want to tuck tail and run and get out of it. I'm totally there. When things are, I'm like, Lord, please change it all. And I know the weakness in my prayer life is Jesus' strength, not my will, but yours. I say that a lot of times because I know I have to. Anybody else with me? There's a lot of times where I know my heart isn't there, but I know it needs to be there. But that's the reason why sometimes the Lord lets us stay in those gardens so that we can eventually get there. Verse 40. He comes back to his disciples and he finds them sleeping and he said to Peter, could you not watch with me? I like he just pointed out Peter. He could have done James or John, but Peter, you know, I ain't falling. So you, you could not watch with me one hour, Peter? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Listen, I know some of you guys fall asleep during my sermons. To which some of you are like, no, I don't. I get it. Hey, and I feel okay because the Apostle Paul, if you read in Acts, he was preaching one night and a guy fell asleep and fell out a window and died. <laughs> we're, we're, we're in great company, you know? It's biblical. It's right there. I remember I'm in a mission trip, you know, in Romania, we were all praying, and apparently I started snoring. I, I don't remember that. But what would you be doing if a couple hours ago Jesus told you that you're all going to run away? And Jesus in this moment says, watch and pray. I, I, I mean, like, obviously they didn't take it serious. They, they just fell asleep. Peter, self-confident Peter, I won't leave you. I won't deny you. I will die. He's sleeping in the garden where the battle is won and lost. Jesus comes and he says with a rebuke, he says it with hurtfulness inside of him, and he says it with encouragement. Watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. You, you, that, that's, that is paramount for us. It's, it's like saying, it's like you see where the battle is won? It's right here, praying. Be alert. 
Be conscious of God and His Spirit. Pray in His Spirit. Pray for His will. Pray for His kingdom. This is what praying without ceasing means. Like, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptations. Like, church, I, I want to burst two bubbles that is, is common thinking within a church. The first one is this. I, 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 I cannot stand this one because I bought this one, hook, line, and sinker, for many years, and it messed me up. It's this thought. God won't give you more than you can handle. That's false. It's completely false. Completely false. I want to show you why. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Can you jump to that one, that verse for me, please? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. Paul starting to talk about his sufferings for the church in Corinthians, right? And he says, listen, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Does it sound like it was more than they can handle? Yeah. Watch what Paul says next. He said, Indeed, we felt that we received a sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's why sometimes God keeps you in the ring. That's why sometimes God doesn't deliver you the way you ask. He's trying to get you to understand dependence upon him to help you understand that you can't go toe-to-toe with your enemy. The hallmark of the Christian life is dependence upon God, and prayer is that exercise of dependence upon God. So yes, God will give you more than he can handle. Absolutely. But yeah, I understand where it comes from because God gives us a way out which is the other myth what I want to bust. I hear this all the time, but pastor, you don't understand. My temptations are unique to me. Nobody struggles, nobody suffers, nobody's tempted the way I am. I, it's just the way I am. I, I can't help it. I'm like, no, that's, that's another myth. That's another false thinking. In fact, I'm going to say that's a ploy of the devil because we also see in Corinthians where Paul's starting to say, it's like, hey, listen, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. You're not unique. We've all done it. But listen, God is faithful. And he will not be, let you be tempted beyond your ability. Tempted beyond your ability. That's different. But with the temptation, you also provide the way of escape. So every time there's a temptation, there's a way out. Every single time. And you know where you find that way out? Praying. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, this word spirit is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. This is a reference to your ambition inside of you. You don't want to fall. You don't want to give in to temptation. You want to stand. Like Paul, Jesus is saying, like, listen, yes, your ambition is right. The spirit inside of you, like, your spirit is willing, but you understand your flesh is weak. That's that total Romans 7 thing where Paul's, like, you know, saying, like, why do I do the very things I don't want to do, but the things I want to do, I don't do? That's like Paul saying, the things I want to do, that's the spirit is willing part, but the things that I do do are the things I don't want to do. That's the flesh is weak part. He's like, listen, yes, you're willing. Yes, you want to love me. Yes, you want to stand. And Peter, yes, I know you want to die for me. I understand that. The spirit is willing, but you got to understand the flesh is weak. Church, you got to hear this. 
God would say to us, like, I know you're willing. I, I know you want to be faithful. I know you want to be good. I know you want to join a small group. I know you want to pray. Did you like that? I know you want to do these things. Like, I know, and I love that you want to worship me with everything. I know, I know, I know. But you've got to understand that the flesh is weak. Because by your own ambition and desire, you will not stand yet. It's only by my spirit that you can stand. It's he who is in you that's greater than he is in the world. Major difference. And I want to end with this. Verse 42. Again, for the second time, Jesus then goes off and he prays, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And the sad news is he comes and he finds him sleeping again. And he goes away for a third time, praying, saying the same words. Here's what I want us to walk away with as it relates to praying in the garden. Jesus prayed. He prayed until he had a predetermined yes. He prayed until his heart was completely ready to say, I'm ready. I'm ready. Not the perfunctory, yes, Lord, your will be done, moving on. Like he kept praying and fighting until his heart was saying, not my will, but your will. And in that moment, you can tell that he was strengthened by the Spirit of God. Because what happens next tells us everything. Right? Angels strengthened Jesus, it says in Luke, that after this, the angels came and they strengthened him. That's what God would do to us as we pray. We get a spot. He strengthens us. And so when we were in the garden, Gethsemane, you can see these are the gates of mercy. They're sealed up, but Jesus was here praying with his disciples, and you can see right there the gates of mercy. And the next thing you know, Jesus goes, look, the hour has come. And as he's looking right up that hill, he can see the army or the soldiers coming with the torches. They have to walk down the hill and back up the hill to get him. And he had every opportunity to tuck tail and run. It would have been like a 25-minute walk to do that. He stood his ground the whole time. Here they come. And when they come, man, the prayerless, sleeping disciples, guess what? They all ran away. They weren't praying. Peter, Peter, oh, good old Peter. He's like, I got this, Jesus. <laughs> Takes out a sword, <laughs> cuts off the ear. Jesus is like, Peter, you want to live by a sword, you're going to die by a sword. Do you not know I could call down infinite number of angels to take care of this mess? Oh, you should tell us that God's ways aren't our ways. And they all run. Peter goes off and denies Jesus. Here's the point. It's not the enemy that makes us run away. It's not the enemy that makes us run away. It's our own unprepared hearts because we're not watching and praying. Because, let's just be honest, a lot of us don't understand prayer. We don't believe in prayer. 
We just believe in prayer before the meal and asking our things and doing this and that. But you got to understand, prayer is where the battle is won and lost. It's right there. No wonder Peter said that the devil is like a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. Because Peter probably was looking back on his life at that moment and went, I wasn't sober-minded. I thought I was strong enough. I thought I was able. Got taken out. He didn't submit himself. He wasn't watching. And now you can tell if you read 1 Peter, he's like, I get it. I get it. I'm praying. This morning, you might be thinking that you lost so many rounds, so many battles, so many times that maybe you failed over and over and over and that the battle is just way too much to endure. And, and here's what I love about this story is that Jesus knew that Peter would fail. He knew that Peter would fail. He told him. He told him. And yet he was so gracious, like, when you come back, when I come back, strengthen your brothers. Peter experienced God's grace. We got to understand that Jesus' victory was won there in the garden, led him to the cross to endure it, which robbed the powers and principalities of all their power. He did it with the joy that was set before us. Now, forgiveness of sins is guaranteed. Victory in the shedding of his blood has given us the power to overcome this prowling lion. His victory, as he went through it, man, he faced the same temptations that we face, and he did it without sin. And because of that, we can stand because of Jesus, not because of you, but because of Jesus. I love it. I just think about this. Like, I... I wonder if Jesus, in that moment of prayer in the garden afterwards, you've got to humor me, leaned into Satan and did the Muhammad Ali thing. Is, is that all you got? I want to end with this final thought. I'm convinced that if we lose in the arena of prayer, we lose everywhere in our spiritual lives. He's won the victory, but the freedom and walking by the Spirit and walking in the joy and the abundance of life that God's promised us, if we lose in this arena of prayer, we will be walking defeated. So wherever you're at this morning, I just ask that you realize that you're in the ring and you're facing an opponent and that your greatest weapon in that ring is praying. So maybe let this morning be the morning where you go, Lord, and just like the disciples, teach me how to pray. There's nothing wrong with saying that. Lord, teach me how to pray. So Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Lord, you know where we're at. You know the struggles. You know the battles. You know even how you're applying the right pressure and the workings in our own lives, Lord. I just ask that this morning they would hear your voice. They would hear the truth and the grace and the love that comes from you. Lord, again, as we said last week and we're going to pray it again this morning, make us a praying church. And the implications of that means, Lord, make us a church that is dependent on you. 
Make us dependent on you, Lord. And if that means we have to endure hardships and go through things that are difficult so that we can learn to rely on you, oh, by the way, the one who raises the dead, so be it. So, Lord, have your way in our hearts. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.